When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is John Kegg, and I'm very, very happy to welcome Lydia Moland, professor of philosophy at Colby College, to How to Be Wrong. She's the author of Lydia Maria Child, A Radical American Life, which will be out with the University of Chicago in November. And I've read it, and it is outstanding. And it's been raved by, among others, Cornell West, Megan Marshall, and Laura Dasso Walls. Uh, West calls it uh, magisterial, I think. So Lydia Maria Child, a 19th century abolitionist and radical philosopher is one of my heroes. So it's very, so I'm very excited to hear more about her, but also about Lydia on the topic of how to be wrong. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with both of you. I'm also joined by the captain of this fallible ship, John Traphagan. John, it's always lovely to chat. Yes, it is always great to catch up and see each other again. And um, and we're, um, again, delighted to have you here, Lydia. And I guess we'll start out by just kind of asking a, a real general question. Um, our podcast has been about how to be wrong, something that John and I are exquisitely skilled at. And so um, I wanted to, you know, look into this question of how we recognize we're wrong, you know, what to do about mistakes we make, the big ones, the small ones. And and really, we've been interested in trying to think about just the continued fallibility. And of course, then how this turns back onto being um, academics, being intellectuals, thinking about intellectual humility. So before we get into Lydia Maria Child, we'd like to ask a little bit, um, if you could describe a pivotal moment in your personal or professional life, um, in which you've just been wrong. And, um, you know, how did it change the way you think about the world? And how did you deal with being wrong? It's such a good question. And I, I just so respect the fact that you are both trying to get more of us not just to think about this question, but to talk about it. So um, here's my um, here's one, here's a moment that stands out to me that does link in some way to my project in this book about child. Um, I'll never forget a time when I was in my first teaching job, which was a college outside of Boston. And there was a moment um, where there was a a horrific racist incident on campus of the kind that we're unfortunately very familiar with. In this case, it was uh, someone who had posted really viciously, violently racist things on Facebook. And some of our Black students noticed this and brought it to the community's attention um, with a lot of you know, anger and upset and uh, resolve to do something about it. 
there was then, as we've also come to expect, a fairly vicious backlash on the part of other students who didn't want to hear this and were convinced that our Black students were overreacting or being too sensitive, etc. And in the midst of all of that um, real convulsion on campus, I went to a meeting between our Black students and the administration. And I'll never forget a particular Black woman, a student, who was um, crying and shouting and doing her absolute best to get through to the administration how desperately terrible this was. And I remember at a certain point, she was from the South. I didn't know, I still don't know who she was, actually. She said, people warned me about this. People told me that if I came to Boston, I would encounter the worst racism I had ever experienced. And at that point, I had lived in Boston for maybe 15 years. I've always lived in the North. Um, I had three higher education degrees, and I had no idea what she was talking about. Not a single idea what she was talking about. I had just grown up with this assumption as a Northerner that racism was predominantly a Southern problem, just like slavery had been a predominantly Southern problem. Um, and it was a kind of conversion moment for me. I suddenly thought, wait a minute, I've been wrong about the place that I live and the way I assume my geographical identity functions in this country. And, I, you know, I, I felt like the only thing I could do was try to figure out what she meant and why she had said that. So I started with um, Common Ground, um, Anthony Lucas's description of the Boston um, busing crisis, which was when a lot of white Bostonians did their absolute and really vicious best to stop the desegregation of Boston schools. Um, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading, and I couldn't believe how wrong I'd been for that long about the facts about race in my community. So that just stands out to me as a moment that I um, I don't ever want to repeat that kind of ignorance again. And I think, and, and this is another good segue to, to child, I think one of the things that a moment like that helps us with is cultivating a kind of moral paranoia. Now, paranoia is usually a bad thing. But I do think that the general sense that some of us might be missing really important moral problems in our society is one that more of us should cultivate. Let's turn to child. And can you talk to us a little bit about um, maybe give, give us a little bit of background for the listeners who aren't familiar with child, but then, um, but then also if you could say a little bit about um, how Lydia Maria Child addressed wrongdoing or moral failings, both in herself, but also in the culture that she faced. That would be great. Yes, happily. So Child was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts. And by the time she was in her late 20s, she had accomplished something almost unheard of in the still very young United States, which is that she was a female self-sufficient author. So she had published a couple of novels that had done very well. She had also published a couple of beloved children's books, and she was editing one of the first periodicals for children in the United States called the Juvenile Miscellany that had puzzles and games and stories and fun facts and 
and was really popular all the way up and down the East Coast. Um, and she'd also published something called The Frugal Housewife, which was one of the United States' first self-help books. She kind of pure pioneered the self-help genre in the United States. And that book is also just, it's just so compelling. It's full of cooking tips and how to get rid of bed bugs and how to cure dysentery. And and it, it sold out something like 12 times in its first three years. And it really defined the way Americans thought about cooking and housekeeping. Um, it's the sort of thing that people in their in middle age still remembered what their mother's editions looked like. So all of, so she'd become what I think is as close as one could be to being a household name in the early 19th century. But then in 1830, she met William Lloyd Garrison, who was uh, one of the founders of the white abolitionist movement in the United States. And I say white in order to avoid the mistake <laughs> of assuming that abolitionism started in the white community. It absolutely did not. Um, there were abolitionist societies and people advocating for abolition in the black community going way back. Garrison had done something slightly radical by listening to the black community and allowing them to convince him that slavery was an evil that had to be immediately eradicated rather than gradually or by sending um, Africans and their descendants to Africa or out of the country in other ways. Um, so he had become an abolitionist. And I think it's just important for all of us to realize that to be an abolitionist in the 1830s was to be a radical. Um, the historian Kelly Carter Jackson has suggested that it's a little bit like saying you were a communist in the 1950s. It was an absolute social taboo for reasons I'm happy to go into later. So um, Garrison knew that Child was an accomplished author and he wanted her for the cause. So he met with her and he convinced her she had a kind of conversion experience to the fact that slavery was an evil and needed to be ended immediately. And she spent the next three years of her life researching and writing what was, um, you know, a book length, scathing denunciation of slavery that did all of the things that women were not supposed to do, like talk about history. There's a chapter on history, on economics, on politics. There's a chapter on the moral character of Africans and their descendants. There's a chapter on the intellectual character. And it's just this like fire hose of information and deconstruction of bad arguments that white Americans had been using to convince themselves that slavery was wrong for decades. So, I mean, the short answer is that's how she dealt with it. She decided, looked at this and said, what are my talents? What are my resources? What can I sacrifice to try to convince other Americans that they are wrong the way I was wrong? And this book was her first attempt to do that. And I, I guess I'll just say one of the things that really strikes me in responding to your question is how much sorrow there was for her about herself. Like when she writes about her sorrow at having missed this major moral fact, um, it's, it's very moving, I think, because I think she felt like she had really failed her own ideals, but also 
she was a novelist. She was supposed to, you know, have highly tuned sensibilities and to be able to imagine other people's lives. And she had just failed at that. And I, I don't think she ever really forgave herself. And I think she, you know, worked for the next five decades really to try to make up for that. Hmm. But she, she was clearly right about, you know, many issues, right? She was right about the treatment of African-Americans, indigenous people, women. Um, and so, you know, in essence, part of this is related to the fact that she was viewed as being wrong in the cultural context in which she was living, which in and of itself raises a very interesting question about how we define right and wrong and how much context shapes that. And, and you know, so I'm curious, how did she handle the fact that she was defined as being in the wrong, despite the fact that she knew she was in the right? Yeah, it's another great question. And I want to answer it psychologically first, which is just to say it was really hard on her. I mean, for, for decades to be tilting against the all of the norms that her society was preaching. Um, and, and she would often say, I don't care. Like, I just have to do what's right. It doesn't matter to me. But then there, there were many times where she would talk about how hard it was, how hard it was to lose her readership how hard it was to be considered a social pariah. And I think a lot of these abolitionists in the 1830s, they were prepared for martyrdom. They really were. A lot of them thought they would die sooner rather than later. It was much harder to be prepared for decades of ostracism, decades of being told that you were wrong. And even um, you know, at the end of the war, when you could think, well, they've, you know, they accomplished what they wanted and now everyone is on their side. That just wasn't true. It was certainly not true at the beginning of the war when many Northerners were explicitly convinced that the war was not about ending slavery. Um, But also even at the end of the war, she would have people come up to her and say things like, aren't you glad that you lived to see justice done to the Negro? And she would say, I'll be glad if I do live to see justice done here because she very clearly saw that public opinion was again kind of getting away from the abolitionist movement. These Northerners didn't want to have to think about racial justice anymore. They didn't want to have to think about the war anymore. So at the end of her life, she was still battling what she saw as her fellow white Northerners' complacency and and complicity. But if I could just like take, oh, John, did you want to go jump in? Yeah, I was just wondering, do you have or did she have any insight or do you have any insight about the um, the reasons for these entrenched, for entrenched belief, even in the face of uh, the facts? And what what factors are, are the are psychological factors, structural, economic factors, social factors? Uh, lead communities to sort of uh, batten down the hatches and hold on to uh, false beliefs. So, I mean, in, in um, the 1870s, Charles Sanders Peirce writes about the fixation of belief, but w- William James, his friend, often talked about um, what was involved in dislodging uh, incorrect beliefs. But, and so maybe, do you have a sense about the factors that um, entrenched moral wrongs? Yeah. I, I mean, there, there are some fairly 
easy ones, as it were. Um, I think the economic ones in the 1830s anyway are, are really not to be overestimated, that many Northern businessmen were deeply complicit either in the slave trade itself or like people in Lowell in factories that needed con- cotton. Um, so there were many people who had economic ties to slavery. And I think Ibram Kendi has been so good at pointing out that often we're told that racial prejudice is on some level natural, that humans just don't like beings that aren't like them. And so it's somehow like obvious that there will be something like racism. But his point has always been, we need to look at what the economic incentives for developing racism were. And I think there were a lot of them. I mean, there, there were a lot of them. So you think, well, we need free labor in order to have this um, cotton. What do we have to say in order to make that free labor justified in our minds? And out of that grows a kind of racist theory of cultural or, or just genetic superiority. And my understanding of the history of racism in the United States is that um, especially in those early centuries, it wasn't there at the beginning. It just, it was, I don't want to say invented, but postulated and then bolstered by ever more powerful arguments such that when you get to the beginning of the civil war, the arguments are much more entrenched than they were at the beginning, as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> so that that's one thing. Another is just that in child's world, anyone who was an authority figure was telling everyone else just to keep their mouths shut about slavery. So people were very clear that it was an enormous political danger for Northern consciences to awaken, as um, I forget who it was exactly who said, essentially we can't have people agitating to end slavery because then the compromises that have been keeping North and South together will fail and we won't stay together as a country. So that was another reason. And in support of that, again, there were religious leaders, economic leaders, political leaders throughout the North, just regularly telling their constituents not to get involved, not to think about it, not to listen to travelers' accounts coming out of the South that documented um, atrocities. So there were all of those reasons, economic, political, um, racist, But I also think part of what Garrison and then Child were trying to convince their fellow Northerners to see was that they were kind of living a lie. That's a heavy psychological lift. Someone really tries to convince you that you've been doing things pretty much wrong, that some of your most basic assumptions about the way you should live your life are wrong. There aren't a lot of us who can sustain that. Um, it's, it's disruptive in a way that is really just psychologically difficult for us. So I think those are some of the reasons anyway. Um, and I think also for someone like Child, what that meant was there was a lot of persuasion needed on many different levels. And also, and maybe we want to talk about this later, it was really important for abolitionists to think about which kind of arguments and which kind of persuasion would work and which kinds would just make people say, you know, get defensive and walk away. 
I, I mean, I think a little bit about child's approach to these issues. Um, and she's been described um, as an insurrectionist. Uh, and um, it seems that a lot of her works take a sort of Trojan horse approach to um, some of these problems. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of her favorite metaphors was that she was a troop of horses shod in felt. So she was going to bring in her troop of horses, but you weren't going to hear them coming. (laughs) And yeah, I think there's a lot of that in her, both in her fiction and in her nonfiction. One of the ways I think she was best at slipping in those arguments sort of unawares was by appealing to people's integrity as Americans. So she would say, you know, we honor our revolutionary forefathers and foremothers. We honor those who are willing to fight for their freedom, right? And then she would say, if that's true, and those who are enslaved in the South are suffering um fates that we can't even imagine. I mean, it was hard to be taxed as much as colonists were taxed, but um, the kinds of vicious torture, separations of families, um, sexual abuse, all of those things in the South, why would you not say that enslaved people in the South more than our revolutionary forefathers um, have a right to rebel? Um, so she would often sort of hold up values that she knew her fellow white northerners shared and then say, look, you're not living up to them. And in fact, you are, you're, you are actively fighting against allowing other people to share in your vision of a free world. So that, that was one, uh, that's one example that comes to mind. Um, she was also very good at writing. This is the fiction writer in her. She was very good at telling the stories of torture and sexual abuse and um, family separation in ways that could not but tug at people's heartstrings. Um, and that was considered really not something that you should do in polite society for the most part. Um, so in like, shifting her novelistic capabilities to doing that kind of thing. She was violating more social norms, but she was really good at it. Um, I'll give you one example. In 1860, she published a pamphlet called, I think, On the Duty of Disobedience to the Fugitive Slave Act. And this was written specifically to new legislators um, in the Massachusetts State House. And Halfway through the pamphlet, she just transitions to imagining, asking them to imagine that they were enslaved. So she says, imagine that your father is your master and your mother was his victim. Now imagine that. And by the end of it, um, it's like watching a, you know, a gripping film. So she, she pulls you all the way along with this you know, thinking of yourself trying to escape, being chased by dogs, being captured in Massachusetts, sent back into slavery where you're then flogged. And then there's this pivot, right, where she just says, shame on you. Right? If you allow this to happen in our state, shame on my state. So it's a, it's a kind of one-two punch of getting people emotionally engaged and then calling in the the moral troop of horses uh, shot in 
in felt. So those are two examples that come to mind anyway. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was interested in one of the things that you said that, um, you know, obviously um, child was, was concerned with both issues of humility and moral responsibility. And you said something intriguing that about in talking about the context, the difficulty people have in seeing that they're wrong about something and that that's psychologically very troubling. And then, of course, it's really difficult when someone points it out. And of course, I, I really just couldn't help immediately thinking about our current situation. And, um, you know, I was reading this uh, this morning. I was watching on CNN the videos uh, from um, January 6th and, you know, really struck with what happens when you're in a situation when, first of all, leaders are telling you that you're right, even though you're wrong. And of course, that was what was happening in the 1830s. Um, and um, and how difficult it is when you're so overwhelmingly wrong, and yet leadership is telling you you're wrong to even begin to see that that could be the case. And I'm curious what how you would see what you've, you learned about child relates to our contemporary situation and the kind of massive wrongness that we seem to be having um, in our society right now. Yeah, I think... A couple things on that. One, and, and you're absolutely right, this is something that all of us are grappling with today. How do you even begin a dialogue with people who are so profoundly attached to something that is clearly wrong? Do you harangue them with um, shaming arguments? Or do you try to uh, meet them on their level, uh, risking that you water down your own convictions in doing that. Um, and I think, I'm not sure that child um, gives us any good news on this question, but I'll tell you essentially what she tried to do and why this put her in such a difficult position. So I mentioned that she was an early ally of William Lloyd Garrison and Garrison's approach was always to harangue. Um, and and as he, he was right. <laughs> There's no question he was right. And his first um, issue of The Liberator, you know, he said, I will not back down an inch. I will not be silenced. And then in all caps, he wrote, and I will be heard. And it didn't take long for people to say, okay, stop, like, quiet. That's too much, too loud, too too militant. Um, and Child really struggled with that because she was not a combative personality. She didn't think that that was usually effective. Um, she supported Garrison to the hilt, as she sometimes put it, but she was also on record wishing that he would be more conciliatory. And then there was an extremely painful um episode in her life where she was editing the National Anti-Slavery Standard, which was the weekly journal of the American Anti-Slavery Society. And she was trying very hard to take a middle road. And she continued to say, I want this paper to be a family newspaper. And I want it to be a paper where everyone can see that everyone can contribute something to this cause. She was convinced that it took all 
kinds. It, it took the Garrisons, but it also took the William Ellery Channings, who were, you know, much more conciliatory and much more hesitant. And anyway, long story short, she was essentially driven out of the movement by other Garrisonians who accused her of being too moderate. So accused her of not holding the line and accused her of compromising with people who she disagreed with. And that broke her spirit in many ways. She resigned from the, um, from that editing position and essentially disappeared from activist work for about 10 years because it was so painful to her to be ousted by her friends for being a moderate when she had essentially sacrificed her entire life to this cause. So, um, and I guess the, the unknown for us is whether she was right in her conciliatory approach or not. I mean, in the end, it did not prevent a civil war, um, but neither did Garrison's haranguing. Um, and I, I keep using the word haranguing. That's more negative than I mean it to be. Um, but it is the way it was perceived by people. Um, so I, in a way, I feel like the, the sad lesson here is that it can be true that you're right about something and that everyone else is wrong or that, you know, whoever your enemies are, are wrong. And it can still be true that it's very hard to know how to communicate with them. I have a question and it's a, it's a sort of more direct question about your trajectory as a uh, professor and academic. So your, your background is in post-Kantian philosophy. You're a, you know, you studied, you study Hegel and write about Hegel. Guilty as charged. And then you say again? Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. And so um, to some, to some people, this turn toward Lydia Maria Child uh, seems like a sort of radical departure from your earlier work. And I'm always interested in seeming radical departures in anybody's work. So I'm wondering what sort of uh, what sort of turn you made. And I mean, this isn't just like a. I mean, I write short books, like 280 pages, and you multiply that by two, and you get your book, so 560 pages. So, uh, I mean, this isn't just a little turn. This is a very substantial turn or a substantial book. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that that turn of events and also why you think that Lydia Maria Child is so uh, well positioned or should have an audience today in the world that we're sort of facing. Absolutely. I had been going about my merry way um, as a Hegel scholar for my whole career. And I had already started to feel a little discontent with that and started to feel like I wanted to study other voices. Um, Hegel didn't need my help, that's for sure, to become you know more famous and more dominant in the field. And even though I still feel um, like I've learned a lot from him on topics like freedom, like what it really means to be free. Um, and I wrote a book about his philosophy of art. I still think his description of art and its importance is really um, convincing. I had started to feel like I wanted to do something else mid-career. And after the election of 2016, I, I literally woke up the next morning and thought, I'm not living my life the same way again. I can't keep doing philosophy the way I was doing it. I have to make my CV and my career reflect the fact that my 
country is in a moral emergency. I think I was a little tipped off to do that in part by being a Hegel scholar, because part of being a scholar of 19th century German philosophy is always to wonder what happened in German culture in the 20th century. And when you're writing about Hegel's scholarship and you're reading Hegel scholars writing in the 1930s, sometimes I find myself thinking, what were you doing? Like, how, how did that seem like a good use of your time to write Hegel scholarship as it became ever clearer that fascism was on the rise? So, you know, without drawing any parallels too tightly, I just felt like I want my life to reflect what is going on in my country right now. And I decided it was time for me to come home intellectually uh, and to find someone in my own history, in part because I thought it was time for me to learn about my own history more. And I decided I wanted to turn to women. I just decided now was the time uh, to pay more attention to women intellectuals. So I had this vague memory that women had been important intellectuals in the abolitionist movement. And by incredible stroke of luck, I stumbled on a letter by child um, at the Radcliffe Schlesinger Library that absolutely arrested my attention and made me feel like I needed to know more about this, this woman. And I guess part of my impulse there, too, was to think that we can't address the major issues in society unless we're thinking philosophically. So I felt like any woman who devoted herself to ending abolition, sorry, to ending slavery, had to be thinking philosophically, had to be asking big questions like what is justice? What is equality? What is history? Where are we in history? Um, and also um, had to be good at making arguments to try to convince other people to change. And th that's something that philosophers are often good at doing. So that is why I decided to do, to start this project. And then uh, John Cag, it was essentially you who said to me, I think you have a great story here. It's not, she's a great philosophical thinker. She herself knew about philosophy, read in philosophy, wrote about philosophy. But I think my initial impulse was to try to write a philosophical book about her. And John, you said, I, th I think there's a bigger story here. I think it's time to tell it. And then <laughs> before I knew it, yeah, it had gotten, her life just took over. Um, it was just so compelling to me that I just kept writing. And that's why it's a, it's not a short book. No, it's great. Um, John, do you have a thought? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts. It's uh, one, one thought is it's just interesting as an anthropologist to listen to these kinds of questions. I, I will admit, as an anthropologist, I sometimes wonder, why would you study some old philosopher and build a career around that? Um, and so it's, it's interesting for me to, you know, listen to how you describe that. And, and also, of course, because... I, you know, I, when I do my research, I go talk to people who are alive and ask them a bunch of questions and they can answer. And that's very different from people who do historical research or, you know, philosophical research because you can't really have a, you know, dialogue. And so, um, it, one of the things that kind of intrigues me is the, the constraints of, of how we do research and how we think about what we're doing as academics. And, and I think it's really important in terms of thinking about the limitations in what we do, that there are things that we 
that we can only get so much out of the particular method. It doesn't matter which method it is. There's only so much we can pull out of it. And um, I think one of the things that's intriguing to me is the way you took the idea of what a philosophical thinker is and then look at her in terms of that and see her as, as a philosopher um, rather than as a radical or as an abolitionist or something like that. It's a reconstruction of her identity in a different way. Um, I, I and, and this is sort of related to this is, is um, so w when I was an undergraduate at, at uh, my co-host institution, I took this fantastic course with a guy named Dean Bergeron, who was kind of a uh, legend there, but it was called Radicalism in U.S. History. And uh, we studied, we did not study uh, Child, but we studied a lot of other people like Eugene Debs. And, and um, these are people who were confronted with a public that was basically unwilling to face widespread wrongdoing. That was what they were facing. They were pointing that out. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting about Child is that her radicalness is sort of geared to dealing with this particular problem, this recognition of a, a moral failing broadly in society, not just among particular individuals, but sort of a, a broad social moral failing that's going on. And, and I was wondering if you could talk about that as sort of this, this you know, this is part of her as a philosopher that she sees this broad moral failing and, and what is defined as her radicalness is her pushing against that broad moral failing. So I, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I love the way you situate that in your own uh, field and, and thinking as well. She doesn't use terms like collective responsibility, but I think that's what philosophers talk about when they talk about things like um, what she does in the last chapter of her 19, sorry, 1833 appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, which is argue that it takes a culture to sustain institutional and institutionalized evil. And even if I never enslave anyone and am not complicit in the slave trade in any obvious ways, my behaviors can support that. So, and I, I want to just say quickly before I forget too, that your, your question reminds me one of the phrases that comes to mind for me most when I think about her and as part of why I think she's a great topic for this podcast, is fierce humility. She, she was humble, but she was fierce. We, you know, we think about humility as maybe then you're, you kind of are a wallflower, you hang back and you, you don't assert yourself. But she, she was so clear that she was part of the problem and that she needed to face up to that and that others needed to along with her, that there was a kind of litany of this is another way in which we need to recognize that we're part of the problem, that we're complicit, that takes humility, but it also takes a kind of ferocity and a kind of courage. Um, and if you, I'd love to just read the first um, sentence of this last chapter of her book, if I could, because it goes right to um, John's question. So this is, again, after there's been a chapter about the economics, the politics, the history of slavery, and now it's like she shifts her cannon around and aims it at her own hometown. The chapter is called Prejudices Against People of Color and Our Duties in Relation to This Subject. First sentence, while we bestow our earnest disapprobation on the system of slavery, let us not flatter ourselves that we are in reality 
any better than our brethren in the South. The form of slavery does not exist among us, but the very spirit of the hateful and mischievous thing is here in all its strength. And then she goes on to catalog everything from Boston fortunes that have been made, as she puts it, on Negro blood to white parishioners who will not put up with black parishioners in their pews or in their stagecoaches or in their hospitals, um, black or white mobs that burn black schools for children to the ground, politicians who use racial slurs in their commentaries. And she goes all the way down to um, little boys yelling the N-word on the streets. And she, she just very clearly says, um, slavery would not be possible without the rest of this. And so if, we're, if we actually care about ending slavery, we have to face up to our own complicity in it and start in the only place we can really control, which is our own hearts, our own minds, and our own behavior. I always think of her as having like a multi-layered approach. So, you know, that was her pitch at that part of the complicity. Um, but she also was very clear that things had to change on the political level and the you know, broader speaking social level as well. But that, and I think if I could put it one more way in a way that connects to my teaching. So I teach moral philosophy. I, I'm teaching it right now. I find that one of the things that gets in the way most of our thinking about how to change is the conviction that we're good people. And so anything that we do must be okay. <laughs> right. So, you know, we recycle, we run marathons for causes, but, you know, we're good people. So if we also continue to do X, Y, or Z that seems to uphold something like racial injustice, that that can't be bad, right? Um, and so I, I think that this idea of, of radical humility, of fierce humility, and of thinking about ways in which we're wrong, as you're helping us do on this podcast, it's so important in breaking down that kind of logical fallacy. So what you're saying, in a sense, is that the the assumption, I'm a good person, releases us from self-reflexivity. Absolutely. It, it becomes this sort of essentializing way of characterizing ourself rather than recognizing we're all complex. We all have good points and bad points. And what really matters is not that I'm a good person, but that I'm engaging in who I am and thinking about, okay, where are the things that I do that are right? Where are the things that I do that are wrong? And how do they intertwine in terms of how I address broader moral ills in society. I think that's a very profound uh, point. I, I really appreciate that point a lot. Yeah. And I, I love the way you put that too. I, I mean, there's a way in which there's this essentializing, right? You think, okay, I'm a good person. So any way I take my vacations, <laughs> any way I shop for the holidays, any way I eat, any way I drive, like all of those things must be good too, because I'm a good person and I'm doing them. I think that can be really blinding. I mean, I think about um, Louise Anthony made uh, the philosopher Louise Anthony made this comment several years ago that philosophers themselves are oftentimes the most blind because they claim some sort of elevated position on the truth. Um, I also, I, I mean, I want to say a couple things about um, what you've gotten me thinking about, which, which is 
It seems that the one of the greatest obstacles, and I say this to my students in combating systemic injustice, is that those individuals in power have the least incentive to overturn the systems that they are perpetuating because they benefit most from those systems. And, um, and the, the most powerful people are uh, the least incentivized to change the system and the least the least powerful are the most incentivized, but they have the you know the the fewest tools to actually um, change things. Oftentimes, um, and so I pose that to my students. I say, "What? Do, what? Do, how are you going to make um, very powerful people care about the plight of the powerless?" And it seems that the move that child makes is like it's a very very smart and maybe the only one that I've really come across the one that I've come across, which is she demonstrates that it is possible for an individual to give up power on the basis of moral uh, principles. She goes from being an enormously popular um, and being, I would say enormously wealthy to being not powerful and giving up huge amounts of money um, in the course of her career, demonstrating that it is possible to change, to make sacrifices and to change one's life on the basis of what he or she or they see as right or wrong. And that's one of the things that I really like about this book, your book, which is the the, the question about how to overturn systemic injustice is not just a matter of, about pointing something out to someone that something is wrong um, or pointing out some sort of radical position um, which ostracizes many individuals who might have the power to overcome, uh, help change the system. But what your book does is to present a radical life, American life, to show that it's possible to change from, I mean, many, many individuals will look at your the cover of your book and see a silhouette. I mean, a, a very old Victorian silhouette of a woman reading a book, and then it'll say radical American life. And, and those individuals who might be turned off by radicalism be scared off by the the idea of the radical might be beckoned in by this sort of Victorian veneer. And then all of a sudden you're inside this life that shows you that it's possible to be wrong, to see yourself as wrong, and then to become, you know, fiercely humble. And I think that that's really, really valuable, I think, today. So anyway, if you can say anything about that, I'd love to hear. <laughs> well, the but. first thing I'll say is, is John has just identified one of my horses shod in felt, <laughs> which was definitely the cover for exactly that reason. There's, um, It's not a radical looking cover. And, and part of why I liked that was precisely what you just said. Part of what I want to show is that this was someone who... Um, 
was a radical by thinking and reading. And in part of what I think was really radical about what she did at the very outset of her activism was to go away and inform herself, right? Really sit down and read and not just throw herself with all her new convictions into something that she didn't understand yet. And I think for us too, that's a kind of radical act. And I think it can be especially a radical act for white people who are used to getting to jump into things and change them and get big results. Um, and she was very clear that she couldn't do that until she'd really sat down and thought about it. But also, John, to your point that um, part of what she, the, the other radical part of her life for me, well, a couple, one is her determination actually to take radical American political principles seriously. So actually to say, if we're going to talk about equality here, we're going to have to talk about everyone. Um, and there are way too many people who liked part of that radical message, but didn't want to radicalize it across um, others, you know, any beyond property white men, essentially. But also her radical anti-consumerism. And she thought of that as distinctly American. And that's what the frugal housewife was about, right? That if Americans were going to be self-sufficient and actually run a democracy, they were going to have to know how to make their own soap. They were going to have to know how to bake their own bread. If we turned ourselves into an aristocracy in which we just did all the thinking and everybody else did all the working, we would replicate the exact conditions we were trying to rebel against. And I think part of what's compelling about that for her is that it was that commitment to American self-sufficiency in the guise of frugality that allowed her for the rest of her life to withstand the poverty that her principles consigned her to. I mean, there's another story about a very, a husband who was very bad with money. So part of her um, financial trouble had to do with her marriage. But she absolutely saw her frugality as, you know, kind of superpower because it let her continue to be a radical regardless of whether people would read her books or listen to her or support her in other ways. So it, in many ways, it's a quiet radicalism. So she she was involved in mobs. She stood up to anti-abolitionist mobs more than once in her life. Um, but she wasn't the kind of gun-toting radical um, that others were. But in, in these ways, I think she really was, if we think about radical, it's roots in roots, right? Like, what are the roots of American um, ideals? She was committed to them in a very radical way. Well, I, for one, have really enjoyed this conversation. Um, John, do you have, a, do you have a, any last thoughts? I have like another 12 dozen questions that I want to ask, but um, go for it. Go well, for I it. I have one question though, that did come to mind that um, as, as I was listening to Lydia talk about this and thinking about this issue of reflexivity and power, I guess the question I would ask is how do the three of us think about that in terms of our roles in positions of power as professors and how does that relate to what we do? as academics and how we deal with students. I have been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, John and I have gone back and forth slightly on this, but um, I just I just published an op-ed on this and, and I stopped giving grades to papers. Um, 
and I have stopped requiring attendance. And, and part of the reason is because I think that the grading structure sets up a hierarchical system that actually works against open discourse and actually works against learning. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts might be. That's sort of been my reaction to this. But as professors, people who are in a position of limited, but some power, um, how, you know, how, how do we take Lydia's ideas and apply them to what, not you, Lydia, but the other, you know, um, anyway, uh, it's very, that's been confusing me all yeah, along. Yes, two Lydia's okay. and yeah. two John's here. I know, I know. it's, it's I a disaster. But um, how do we take child's ideas and, and, and your ideas and, and, you know, sort of take them as a way to criticize and think about what we do as academics and as professors? That's a great question. Uh, and I would love to hear what both of you have to say about that. Um, I guess I would just say that I, I also feel increasingly like I am interested, and those, this goes back to what John Cagg was asking a minute ago too, in ways that I can either give up my power or repurpose it in a way that empowers others. And um, I think the question of how to do that in the classroom is, is one that I'm really just at the beginning of thinking through. But I, I think the pandemic helped with this as well. There were so many things that going into the pandemic, I just took for granted as standards that I needed to uphold in my teaching and grading and things I needed to you know, make sure that students could do. And now, honestly, I can't always remember why I thought I had to do those things. And I, I increasingly feel suspicious that way more of them were simple exercises of power in ways that I can't figure out how to defend anymore. And if I believed that they always help students learn and grow, that would be one thing. Um, but I, I feel like I'm at, at the beginning of, of realizing that that's less the case than I thought. But I, I really would love to hear what either of you have to say about that as well. I mean, I, I think when you published the, the article about abolishing grades, I, my initial impulse was, oh my gosh, this is going to allow professors to do an even poorer job than they're already doing in terms of um, evaluating or interacting with students. And um, because there is this deep relationship also between high grades and um, student evaluations. And, uh, and I, I'm concerned about that in my own institution. But what you said, and I think this is 100% right for certain types of classes and maybe all classes, but the way that you evaluate students is one-on-one -on -one and you have, the, you have a conversation with them and you talk to them about what they think that they're getting out of this class and what do, you, what do they think that they're learning and how do they think that they're doing, which is a very long and very involved process for professors. And, um, and as you've commented, most students evaluate themselves more poorly in that one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one conversation than you or I or other professors might. And I think that's very interesting. I think that our university system is not set up necessarily 
to encourage that type of very close evaluation. In fact, it's come, I mean, that type of evaluation is more similar to a, to a tutorial system um, where you really have a one-on-one connection with your students. And unfortunately, large state schools and large, large community colleges simply don't have staff to provide that type of um, evaluation or feedback. Um, so I, I, I guess those individuals who have the greatest power, let's call them Ivy League professors when it comes to academia, should evaluate in that way, I think, because they have incredibly small classes and uh, don't teach a large load. And in fact, a lot of them do because a lot of them are only teaching graduate students. But then the problem arises, I think, that we have more students going to college than we actually can support by the current faculty resources that we have and the current incentive structures of a university. So tenure is based not on teaching, but on research, which I think, you know, drives a lot of incredibly good teachers out of the profession. So uh, those are my kind of two cents. I think they're really good two cents. And I think one of the things they point to is one of the most serious problems in academia is the monetization of students. Um, what basically happens is that, that we count how many butts there are in seats and then uh, assign a dollar figure to it. And so then that pushes to having larger and larger class sizes. You know, I teach at an enormous university. Um, I don't know how I would do this with, you know, my, the class I teach on culture and biomedical ethics, which has 100 students in it. So I'm able to do it in small classes. Fortunately, we still have small classes at UT. But one of the things that is interesting, so I spent all day yesterday um, having conferences with students. That was, And I will spend much of next week doing the same thing. And, um, but several interesting things have, have, you know, come out as I've developed this idea. And, um, one of the things is the students stop worrying about grades and start focused on their, started focusing on their writing and developing their writing. I have gotten some amazing papers, um, that I don't think I would have gotten before. And, um, and the other thing that's really interesting is you get exactly as John described, you know, I had a student, um, they have to do a self-evaluation where they grade themselves. And, and I had one student who wrote a really nice paper, really interesting, and he gave himself an F for the term, <laughs> you know, or for the half term. And, and it's just, it's like, I said, dude, you, you, you're not doing F work. And he's like, I know, but I'm so uncomfortable giving myself a grade. And it, it, one of the things I think is really powerful is it tells you that students are struggling with this issue of being evaluated rather than focusing on what they're learning. They're so focused on the evaluation side of things. They don't even know how to evaluate their own performance. And I, I think to me, this has really increasingly become an issue of, of the fact that the classroom is structured in terms of a power relationship rather than structured in terms of a learning relationship. And I think, I actually think we're in big trouble because of this, because I think this keeps, keeps reproducing it in society and emphasizes this ongoing necessity to have leaders and followers, people in power and those over whom they uh, have power 
rather than creating collaborative environments where we, we work together. And so it's been an interesting experiment. Um, definitely, I, I'm pretty sure the chair of my department doesn't like it at all, but I don't, also don't care. Um, but it's, you know, it, it is a really different way to think about things. And, and I'm hoping more uh, faculty will start rethinking about the nature of grades. It doesn't have to be what I'm doing, but you know, is, is giving grades really of any value? I think that's a good question to ask, even if the answer turns out to be yes, um, but we just don't ask it. And I think that kind of gets back to, maybe to bring this back around, this kind of, you know, tendency to sort of just sit in the assumption about the way we do things is the right way to do things, rather than asking what's wrong with the way we're doing things and what wrongs does it generate, even if, there are a lot of good things about what we're doing. It still may generate wrongs. And, and I think that's something we should always be looking at. Yeah. And if part of what we're trying to do is teach, and, you know, I think there's a correlate in child's life there as well. Uh, the question of, you know, is it the kind of top down, you're not doing this right. I'm going to show you how to do it. Or is it the bottom up? How can I awaken your own moral sensibilities um, in a way that will or just curiosity in a way that will um, help you learn better. I think that's the kind of thing that she was struggling with as well, uh, not in the classroom, but otherwise. And and it, could I just say one more thing before um, we close up? I just want to say that I, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that child was always right. <laughs> and I, I think there are a couple of really instructive ways, especially for white people like myself, to learn from things that she continued to get wrong Um and I, I won't go on, but you know, one is she continued in most cases to be an assimilationist. So she mostly wanted us to treat all people as equal in their ability to imitate European culture or assimilate to European culture. Um, and I think that created some really interesting tensions in her own writing and activism. Um, but that's something I think about a lot. And the, and the other is just that I think she was sometimes wrong in how insistent she was that newly emancipated Black Americans especially forgive and be reconciled with their former enslavers. Um, I think she, that kind of reasoning put an incredible burden on enslaved people, formerly enslaved people who were already fighting for their lives and to be told by someone of her stature you also have to forgive them. And it was, was a kind of psychological burden that I, I fear did a lot of damage. It's really honest and helpful. Thank you. And thank you for this hour. It's been absolutely a, a pleasure. Um, John, thanks so much for uh, guiding us here. And um, Lydia, thank you. Thank you. And thank you both for taking on this topic. And I hope many more people think much more carefully about it as a result. Thanks. Thanks so much.